are just the first eight verses. You can listen along as I read. After I read, I'll say something like, this is God's word. And I invite you to join me in thanking God for his word by saying, thanks be to God. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Idri. Beyond the Jordan and in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of that land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. God. All right, new series, new book. So here we go. I'm going to kick off. I'm going to kick us off in an unusual way. I'm going to tell you why you shouldn't read the book of Deuteronomy. (laughs) Kind of the opposite of how introductions are supposed to work, right? First, the name. Can we talk about this? Deuteronomy? I mean, I can hardly say that name. Don't ask me to spell it. And, oh man, don't even ask me to tell you what it means. It's not a good sign when you're already confused by the title. So better just keep the book shut, right? Next, you shouldn't read Deuteronomy because the contents of the book, even if you, if you manage to open it, it's really long. There's almost no action. And a lot of what's in Deuteronomy has been said in the Bible already. Deuteronomy is a no Philemon or Jude. It's not one chapter. It's 34 chapters. It's not filled with stories like numbers. It's actually just three long speeches. And a lot of these speeches contain the same laws you loved from Leviticus. It makes me feel like Deuteronomy is like the mafia, right? Just like just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. You should read Deuteronomy because many of the instructions in this book, you can't apply directly to yourself. You aren't called to conquer and invade a land that was promised to you. You don't need to worry about not eating camels or hares or rock badgers or pigs. And there are no longer offices of priests and Levites and kings. That's really just scratching the surface. So better to just leave this book alone, right? Steve, you're really scoring points against your own team, right? Well, hold on. Now, all those reasons are understandable, but I think you can resolve them if you press in just a little bit deeper. Yes, this book has instructions for people living in a different time, people living in a different place, and people living in a different stage of God's plan to save his people. It does have particular relevance for the people it's written to. But remember, the God who gave this book has an unchanging permanence. It might take extra work, but you can still see who God is and how he has called you to live, even in Deuteronomy. Yes, we say this book is long. Yeah, it doesn't have a lot of action. Yeah, it's repetitive. 
But before you would keep it shut, consider who kept this book open. Jesus. Did you know that of all the books that Jesus quoted, he quoted Deuteronomy the most? So if this book is good enough for Jesus to read and shape his life, don't you think it's good enough for you to read and for it to shape yours? And yeah, Deuteronomy is a weird name. But there's nowhere that the Bible says, thus shall you name this book Deuteronomy. Kind of came up with it afterwards. It, it comes from a Greek translation of the word from Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. That verse instructs the eventual king to make a second copy of the law. So you can see that in that word. Deutero means second. Namas means law. But I think the Hebrew title of this book uh, is probably more helpful. It comes from the first words of chapter 1, verse 1. The title is something like, These Are the Words. So Deuteronomy isn't a book about additional law. It's not just a straight copy of what's come before. Deuteronomy is words urging and motivating God's people to trust and obey him. And I think now we're getting somewhere. When you move past the statement of chapter one, verse one, you can start to see the significance of this book. These are words given to people at a crossroads. They have a past that's filled with failure. They have a past that's filled with embarrassment. But now they have another chance. But still, the future is scary. What God's called them to is intimidating. So will they go forward? And if they do go forward, how, is, how are they going to do it? So I think this is the main point of chapters one through three. If you can find it printed on the back of your bulletin. That when the future looks scary... God gives a way forward, and surprisingly, by telling you to look backward. When you do this right, you'll be humbled and encouraged to place all of your confidence in him. I think that's what God's doing for his people in Deuteronomy 1 through 3. These opening chapters remind you that God has given you every reason to trust and obey him. So here's the plan for these chapters. We're going to start at the beginning, sort of give a lay of the land. Then we'll talk about how God uses their past to humble them how God uses their past then to encourage them. And finally, we'll give a case study of what it looks like to be humbled and encouraged in the person of Moses. So we're gonna start with a lay of the land and look at the first eight verses of this book. So chapter one, verses one through eight. Just look there for a second. Now you're gonna understand the significance of Deuteronomy when you remember the situation behind Deuteronomy. That's a good practice to read the Bible well, friends. To know what you're reading, you should ask, where is this located in the overall story of the Bible? Because if you don't ask that, it's a little like trying to watch one scene from the middle of a movie. You might appreciate that scene. That scene might be funny. That scene might be powerful. But you, won't, you might not fully understand or appreciate that scene if you haven't watched the whole movie. You won't know the characters. You won't know the plot. So I think the first eight verses shine light on the situation of this book and where it fits in with the whole big story of the Bible. So for example... The first eight verses of Deuteronomy tell us where this is happening. Just look at verse one. Israel is beyond the Jordan River. More specifically, they are east of it. And while it's tough to get an exact location from the places that's listed, we do get more clues as to where they are. According to verse one, they're still in the wilderness. The wilderness is a place that's loomed large in the story of Israel. Being in the wilderness means that they aren't settled down in one place. Being in the wilderness also means they've been subjected to many dangers and difficulties. We get another clue of where they are in verse 5. That tells us they are in the plains of Moab. Again, this reinforces that they're in a land that's not their own. 
because they don't have a land that's their own, but they're right on the cusp of it. The first eight verses of Deuteronomy also tell us when this all happens. Verses two and three, it says, it is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month, this is when it's happening. If you give you a look closely here, this is actually a subtle jab from big number 10, Moses. Horeb is another name for Sinai. Sinai is the place where God brought the Israelites after he freed them from Egypt. Sinai is the place where God officially made them his own people. It's the place where he told them how they're going to live as his people. It's the place where he told them how he's going to dwell among them as their people. And so here in Deuteronomy, Moses tells them, it should have taken us 11 days to get from Sinai to where we are now. But instead, it's taken us 40 years. Clearly something went wrong. That's what the book of Numbers was about. And Moses is going to remind us of all that in the opening chapters of Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy happens not only when they're fresh off of failures, it also happens more recently when they're fresh off of victories. Moses lists two recent victories over different kings in verse 4 of chapter 1. Finally, Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 8, tells us uh, what Deuteronomy is trying to accomplish. Look at verse 5. Moses undertook to explain the law. I think here Moses captures the true heart behind preaching. The true heart behind preaching is not being charismatic. It's not being entertaining. It's not self-help tips or life hacks. It's not inspirational stories with occasional Bible references uh, fluttered throughout. No, it's what we're trying to accomplish here Sunday by Sunday. To explain what God has said in his word and apply it to our lives. Deuteronomy is really a series of three speeches of Moses explaining and applying the law. And if you skip ahead to verse eight, that will show you God's goal for this book. God wants his people to go in and take possession of the land. So in the opening part of this sermon, we're trying to give a lay of the land of this book. In the opening part of Deuteronomy, God's literally laying out the land before his people. It's the land that he's promised to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. So as you sail through Deuteronomy and you feel lost on its waters, let this be your northern star. God's trying to get his people to trust him so that they'll listen to him and so that they'll do what he says. He's trying to get his people to trust that he keeps his promises to trust that his commands are good, to trust that he's worth following through risk and even uncertainty. Deuteronomy is all about God getting his people to move forward with what he's called them to do. That's what this book is about. You know, when I get together with individual members from the church, one question I'll often ask is what direction are you moving spiritually? Would you say that you're moving forward, backward, or would you say that you're kind of stuck? How would you answer that today? Maybe here's some examples to help you think about it. God's first called you to repent of your sin, to trust in his son Jesus as the one who stands in your place, and to follow him as Lord of your life. With what God has called you to do there, are you moving forward with that, backward with that, or are you just stuck? 
Another example, your, your next step after you do that is God's called you to go public with your faith in Christ and baptism. He's called you to link arms with other believers and be part of a local church. Are you moving forward with that? Backward with that? Or are you just stuck? In the Christian life, our Lord has called you to make disciples of Jesus. He's called you to sexual purity. He's called you to marital fidelity. He's called you to financial generosity. He's called you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. He's called you to pray. He's called you to kindness and forgiveness. He's called you to be zealous for good works. He's called you to persevere to the end. Are you moving forward with those things? Backwards? Or are you stuck? These opening chapters of Deuteronomy begin to show how God moves his people forward with what he's called them to do. To trust him so that they'll listen to him, so that they'll do what he says, so that they'll live how they were meant to live. And God starts doing that by humbling them. That's our next point, humbling them. So after chapter one, verse eight, Moses shows how the people really got off to a good start. Way back in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to give their forefather, Abraham, land, descendants, and blessing. So here we are in Deuteronomy, and Moses reminds them that this promise of land, of this promise of land in verse eight. And then Moses tells them how God has made good on his promise of descendants and blessings in verses nine through 11. Follow along, Deuteronomy 1, 9 through 11. Moses says, at that time, that is when they were at Sinai after the Exodus, at that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord has multiplied you and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. Moses is saying, guys, God has so kept his promise to us for that, that there are too many people for me to take care of myself. I had to come up with some kind of system of administration in order to take care of all you people. So a system is in place for this big group of people to move into this land and live well in it. So God has fulfilled what he's promised and everything's good, right? Wrong. We see that Moses put this system in place, not just because of how big the people were, but also because of how bad the people were. Take a look at Deuteronomy 12, uh, chapter one, verse 12. Moses says, how can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Ooh, there are some rumbles for a storm that's brewing. And Moses is gonna remind them of what happened with that storm, why it happened, and how God can use it now. What happened is that they started out on what should have been that 11-day journey. Take a look at verse 19. The one from Mount Sinai or Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, the edge of the promised land. And Moses doesn't mention how along the way God met all their needs and God answered all their complaints. He fed them with bread from heaven. He gave them water from rocks in the desert. They get to the edge of the promised land and God tells them, guys, it's time. Go on in. You see, they've been in the exact same situation they are now once before. Already, they've been on the cusp of what God has promised. Already, they had just had to move forward to receive the land that God had promised. But back then, before they decide to go in, they send 12 spies to sort of scope out the joint. What kind of land are we dealing with? What kind of people, what kind of opposition are we going to face as we go in? So these 12 spies go in, they come back, they give a report to all the people. They all agree, guys, this land... 
is amazing. It's everything we could have dreamed. But 10 of them say, it's just going to be too hard. It's not worth it. And the people listen to the 10 spies rather than the two spies who said, let's go in and trust God. So they listen to the 10 spies and God basically tells them, guys, well, if you don't want it, you're not going to get it. The only two guys who are going to enter and enter and enjoy the land are the two who said you should, Caleb and Joshua. The rest of you are going to live out all your days in the wilderness. So what should have took 11 days now turns into 40 years. And instead of sending them to the land, God sends them back to where they came from. Chapter one, verse 40, he sends them back in the direction of the Red Sea. Uh, But after God says that, like all of us, now the people want what they can't have. So they muster up a group to try to take the land, even though God says, I'm not gonna give it to you. And unsurprisingly, that effort fails and the people are stuck in the wilderness. That's what happened. But why did it happen? Why did the people refuse to go in when God told them to go in? And why did they go in when God said, don't go in? I think you can see their heart and their motivation throughout chapter one. Look, for example, at verse 28. They say, our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Moses counters. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. So here's the deal. They focus on how big the people are. Moses wants them to focus on how big God is. Oh, that's a lesson as many have observed. When people overwhelm you, it could be because you have too small a view of God. And compare this to verse 42 of chapter, 20, of chapter 1. It says, The Lord said to me, Say to them, Do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So here's what's going on. You put these two things together. When God tells them, Listen, guys, I'm with you. They respond, No, 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 no. This is way too hard. But then when God says, Listen, I'm not with you. They respond, we got this. We'll just go in. So what do they prove? They prove that they're more confident in themselves than they're confident in God. And this is a prideful heart of sin, isn't it? It's really what sin is communicating. God, I don't trust your power. I don't trust your goodness. I don't trust your ways. I trust my own. God tells them to look backwards. He reminds them of what happened. He reminds them of why it happened. And now we look at how. How could God use a reminder of their failure to move them forward in their future? He can use it by humbling them. It's like he asked them, listen, guys, when you relied on your own strength, when you went your own way, where did that end you up? So my friend, if you feel stuck spiritually, if you're not moving forward at all, your first step isn't up, it's actually down. You must begin with brutal honesty about your own spiritual bankruptcy. One author writes this. He says, to the degree that you minimize the evil within yourself, you lower the ceiling on how deeply you can grow. So you take a painkiller and go to sleep when you have a headache. But you undergo chemotherapy 
when you know you have a brain tumor. The severity of your condition dictates the depth and seriousness of the medicine you need. If you view your sinfulness as a bothersome headache instead of a lethal cancer, you will see tepid growth in your life. In other words, if you think you have a little problem, you will have a little God. And you think you can address all of life yourself. Friend, have you taken this first step down of humble honesty about yourself? It is the only way up to God. Have you been humbled to see your own spiritual bankruptcy? To confess, as we often sing, and we'll even sing later this evening, that God, there's no list of sins I haven't done. There's no list of virtues I've pursued. There's no list of those I'm not like that can earn myself a place with you. You must be humbled to sing that before you will ever sing, my righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him and he alone can give me rest. Have you begun with that first step down of humble honesty? My brother and sister, do you continue in this same way? Do you continue? Do you live your Christian life in humble honesty about yourself? I think we can often misunderstand, at least functionally so, that the goal of the Christian life isn't to arrive at some place of self-sufficiency where I can handle everything on my own. No, the goal of the Christian life is to deepen your God dependency. What did Jesus say? You can do nothing apart from me. So when you're reminded of your past, when you're reminded of the person you took advantage of, when you're reminded of all those images that have passed on your screen, when you're reminded of all those hurtful words that have come out of your mouth, that can either cripple you or it can compel you to be humble about yourself and lead you to collapse into God. But after God humbles his people forward, he then encourages his people forward. So looking back, he says, you guys have no reason to be confident in yourselves. But looking back also, you have Every reason to be confident in me. That's what God demonstrates in chapters two and three of Deuteronomy. And again, we can explain what happened, why it happened, and how God uses it to move them forward. What happened is at the beginning of chapter two, Israel was sent back the same way they came. They wander in the wilderness for some 40 years. It's where the Exodus generation lives out their days. And as the old generation fades and the new generation rises, God sends them back on their way again. Chapter two, verse three, God says, you've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward. In other words, guys, let's try this again. <laughs> Go back toward the promised land. And the question is, what's gonna happen this time? This time they travel through three nations that surrounded the promised land. First, we're told in chapter two, verses four through eight was the nation of Edom. Edom was occupied by the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. Jacob was later renamed Israel. They get through Edom safely. Next, they come to Moab. We're told this in chapter 2, verses 9 through 15. The Moabites are descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew, another distant relative of Israel. They get through Moab 
safely. Next, they come to Ammon. We're told about this in chapter 2, verses 16 through 25, and the pattern continues. The Ammonites are also distant relatives of the Israelites. God had given the Ammonites land and caused the Israelites to pass through that land safely. So they pass through these three nations safely, and now they battle against two other nations victoriously. The first nation is Heshbon, led by King Sihon. Israel makes an offer of peace, but Sihon refuses. He comes out to battle against them, and Israel wins. And they don't just win. We're told that they win decisively. Verse 34. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 34. It says, We captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. We encountered something like this already at the end of the book, at the end of book of Numbers. And here we are again at a hard verse. I'd be remiss just to skip over it. How can we start to make sense of a verse like Deuteronomy 2, 34? I can't pretend to give you an exhaustive explanation, but I can at least say maybe five brief things, just as a little aside, okay? Deuteronomy 2, 34. First thing is this doesn't come out of nowhere. Judgment isn't new. Neither is warning about judgment new. Genesis chapter 6, God flooded the whole earth because every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. In Genesis 18, God wipes out the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin was very grave. Right here, the nations surrounding Israel were warned of their well-documented evil, which we'll see later in Deuteronomy. This doesn't come out of nowhere. And let me tell you, my friend, very humbly so. Your giving an account to God won't come out of nowhere either. It is God's mercy to you that he has warned you, told you in advance that you will stand before him and give an account for your life. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment. Two, looking at Deuteronomy 2, 34, how do we make sense of it? We should say this isn't impartiality. It's not that God keeps one nation accountable and then lets other nations skirt by. No, God threatened the same fate for the Israelites. Like we've already said, God, over the course of 40 years, wiped out an entire generation of Israelites. Some by earthquake, some by plague, some by fire, some just by it being in the wilderness. This reminds us that apart from the grace of God, all would die in their sin. What does the Bible say? The wages of sin is death. Number three, Deuteronomy 2.34. How do we make sense of it? What well, we should say, this isn't something you naturally understand. This isn't something you and I naturally understand. The British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said that you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that you will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves and we can always put up a good case for ourselves. In other words, it's like you and I have a disease and one of the symptoms of that disease is that you and I feel healthy. But a true encounter with a living God, with his beauty and with his goodness, will show you the ugliness and the sinfulness of sin. Just the bottom line, if you want to know how bad sin is, look at what it did to Jesus on the cross. Four, how do we make sense of Deuteronomy 2.34? Four is that this isn't something that you and I copy. God's people are no longer one theocratic nation. 
We are made up of those from many different nations. Our battles are no longer physical. They are spiritual. Ephesians 6 tells us that. And number five, how do we make sense of something like Deuteronomy 2.34? Well, we should say this isn't something that you and I have to face. I'm reminded of what will be ahead in the book of Joshua of Rahab. They're coming to knock on the doors of Jericho. Rahab didn't have to face it. Friend, it is a mercy of God that he's warned you that he'll hold you accountable. But it's even a greater mercy that he has provided a way out of judgment. Because he, if you will trust him, judged his son in your place on the cross. Bearing the wrath that you deserve. So I implore you, this is the only way. Cling to the cross of Jesus. Cling to him and tell others to do the same. Now, back to Deuteronomy 2 through 3. We're asking what happened. The new generation is heading back to the promised land. They've traveled safely through three surrounding nations. They've already defeated one nation, Heshbon. And next they defeat another nation, Bashan. And this nation was led by King Og. We're told about this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. I feel like if your parents named the kid Og, he's kind of destined to be a supervillain. <laughs> After that, in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, two and a half tribes of Israel now settle in the former territories of Heshbon and Bashan. These are both east of the Jordan River. So what happened? They've traveled, they've conquered, they've begun to settle. Why did it happen? What explains all this? Well, it's not really a what, it's a who. For the three nations they travel through safely, God told them, I'm not giving you this land, I've already given it to them. For the two nations they travel through, God told them, I'm giving you this land. What's the common denominator? All the land, not just the promised land, all the land belongs ultimately to God. The common denominator that explains it is that God rules over every nation. He is the sovereign one. He's not just the tribal God of the Israelites. He is the God of all the earth. Take a look at chapter two, verse 25. God says, this day, I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the people who are under the whole heaven. Oh my. God rules over all that he has made. So what happened? They've traveled, they've conquered, they've begun to settle in the new land. Why? Well, because God is in charge and he gave it to them. How can God use that? How can God use a reminder of their success in order to move them forward? He can use it to encourage them. When they pass through the three nations safely, it's like God hammers home this lesson time and again. It's like he tells them, when you pass through these nations, just take a look around. Take a look around. These nations, they aren't even my special people. And I gave them land. If I can do that for them, think about what I can do for you. And it gets even better. Take a look at chapter two, verse 10. When describing the land that God gave to the Moabites, it says the Anim formerly lived there, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Hold on, does that ring a bell? The Anakim were the people that Israel was scared of that kept them from entering the promised land. So it's like God saying, when you pass through these nations safely, take a look around. I gave this land to them. I gave a land to them that was filled with people that you were scared of. And that's not all. The two nations that they conquer and they settle in, they're like God's down payment. 
The promised land is like the whole purchase. These two victories are proof that it's not too much for God. God's credit score is perfect. His check's not going to bounce. Take a look at little details like chapter 2, verse 36. It says, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Do you remember one of the reasons why Israel refused to go into the promised land? Back in chapter 1, verse 29, the cities were too great for them, literally too high for them. Or another little detail, like chapter 3, verse 11. Og, that great supervillain. His tomb, it says, was nine cubits in length and four cubits in breadth. In other words, this guy was huge. They, were, they used to be scared of giants, and here they killed the king of the giants. So how does God move his people forward? Well, being humbled about your own inability isn't the end. If that's all that happens to you, you'll just be left in paralyzed despair. No, God leads them to be empty of themselves. But then he gives them every reason to trust fully in him. We skipped over this, but I wanted to save it for here. Look back at chapter 1, verse 30. How Moses tries to reason with the people. He says, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did in Egypt before your eyes. Just as he did in Egypt. That was their deliverance. That was their redemption. It's like Moses is telling them, the God who saved you is going to stay with you. And he's already begun to prove that. So my friend, when you're scared about the future, when you're timid about what God's called you to do, when you are spiritually just stuck, The way forward is to be emptied of yourself and filled with him. This is the God who saved you, not just from Egypt. He has saved you from the penalty of your sin. And it's good to reflect on all the ways that God God has proven that that not only has he saved you, but he has stayed with you after he saved you. Now, at the beginning, we said we would close with a case study of one who is humbled and then encouraged to move forward. And that's Moses himself. So just briefly, we're going to look at chapter 3, verses 23 to 29, how the chapter closes. It begins with Moses pleading with God, God, please let me go into this land. And God says no. In verse 26, Moses claims that God says no because of the rest of the people. Guys, it's your fault. Well, on the one hand, the people did push Moses and he did suffer a lot on their behalf. But on the other hand, Moses is responsible for his own actions. He disobeyed God's orders. He failed to honor God among his people. Either way, Moses is humbled. He doesn't enter the land. He just gets to see it from afar. He seems to accept the Lord's verdict and turns to encourage his successor, Joshua. And that's how chapter 3 ends. It's really a preview of how the book of Deuteronomy will end as a whole. But right here at the end of chapter 3, it just seems like such a letdown for Moses. It doesn't seem like Moses leaves encouraged. It it seems like he leaves discouraged. But if you fast forward in your Bible from here, way ahead to Luke chapter 9, you'll find Moses again. And Moses will be with Elijah. And Elijah and Moses will be with Jesus on another mountaintop. This is a mountaintop that was actually in the promised land. And there, Luke chapter 9 says that Elijah and Moses spoke with Jesus uh, literally about the exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish. Well, Moses must have been encouraged to see that day. 
Because unlike him, Jesus will suffer innocently and die on behalf of his people. And Jesus will accomplish what Moses couldn't. He will save a stubborn, sinful, and spiritually stuck people and transform them. And not only that, he will stay with them to the end of the age as he moves them forward, not to a new earthly home, but to a heavenly home. Let's pray. Oh, great God of highest heaven, would you occupy our lowly hearts? Would you own it all and reign supreme, conquer every rebel power? You are worthy to be praised with every thought and deed. Oh, great God of highest heaven, would you glorify your name in us? Take us down and then bring us up and move us forward. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.